Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, so who has an object lesson today? Uh, I've got one. one. You have one? You yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wait, isn't Phil our object? Oh, Phil. Hey, Phil is our object. Welcome, Phil. Phil Walter. Thank How do you, you feel so about much. being objectified? I'm, I'm quite used to it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming and being objectified today at the podcast. Thank you for inviting us. I'm always wanting to be objectified on behalf of Rational Security. <laughs> well, we're very glad you're here. Nothing like objectification for a good cause. It's, like, was, it's you, like the best part of our Twitter stream has come to life right here in the Jungle <laughs> Studio. But I, I, got, I got to tell you a really cool thing that happened the other day. I was taking the uh, Metro home the other night with uh, uh, Courtney Dunnikin, who uh, uh, does uh, development work for for, uh, this section of Brookings. And uh, a a young man walks up to me and says, you're Ben Wittes, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, "Uh, I love rational security. And uh, uh, this was a student at AU who's a regular listener. And so I just want to say, I didn't catch his name. I just want to say, uh, you know, keep on listening and uh, thanks for thanks for saying hello. Yeah, and, we, and maybe and one day you too. you too can be objectified on <laughs> And also security. anyone who sees Benjamin Wittes on the street should just go up to him and say, are you Benjamin Wittes? And, and, and 90% of the time, the person will look at you funny and say, no. <laughs> yeah, just actually, yes, ask everybody you see on the street whether or not they are Benjamin Wittes. That's what I'm going to do when I leave here. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Huddled Masses edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. There's a huddled mass here in the Jungle Studio. We have a packed house in the Jungle Studio it's, today. This is a crowded mass. We're here with here. Uh, our good friends Tamar Kaufman, what is Ben Winnis and Susan Hennessy. Hi, Shane. And Phil Walter. Phil Walter of the website Divergent Options. And I think Phil is safe to say easily our favorite Rational Security listener. It took years of hard work to get here and finally be objectified. <laughs> but everybody who's listening, you too, if you work hard on Twitter, you can become an objectified right. tool. Of 101 episodes later, but, you too. But I think, I, I think it's fair to say, like, Phil was one of the first listeners of yeah. Rational Security. There, there, there was a time when there weren't that many. <laughs> he might have been for a while the only yeah. listener of Rational Security. He's our East thinking. He was our favorite back when we didn't have any choice. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the way you feel about your first child, you know? <laughs> well, Phil, we're really glad you're here. Uh, you. on yet another slow news week. Uh. All right, so this week on the show, a lot to get to, so we're going to dive in. Uh, the Trump administration's executive order on immigration spurs chaos and protests. Uh, related to that, does a State Department protest over the order signal a new rise of bureaucratic resistance to the new president? And what do we make of the restructuring, or like a, called the rewiring, maybe, of the National Security Council, uh, plus object lessons, more than just Phil, although he's our favorite here today? Um, why don't we dive in with the uh, the executive order, um, which I think it's safe to call it a ban uh, on people from seven countries because the president called it a ban. 
even though Sean It's Spice- not a ban, even if I call it a ban, right. Shane. It's not? And, and it's no. outrageous if the failing media, the, the, the dishonest media, I guess you're not the failing New York Times. You're the pathetic Wall Street Journal or something. I don't know. Ooh. I mean, I, I, we're, we're not a house organ. What are we exactly? I'm yeah, because sure. he likes Rupert Murdoch. So yeah, he's, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, it's, um, I think, I think it is objectively a ban. It may not objectively be a Muslim ban, given that there are lots of Muslims who aren't covered by it, but it is objectively a ban. Right. And where do we even begin with this one? I mean, I'm sort of, there's, okay, let's just take, let's just take first a, let's try as we do on rational security. Is there a rational explanation for tomorrow for the implementation of this order? Oh, well, since you asked it that way, why no, Shane? <laughs> the implementation of this order has no <laughs> rational explanation. Um, you know, this is, to me, it's a very, very interesting case of uh, a very stark case of the difficulty shifting between campaigning and governing. Campaigning, you say things and they are real for you and for your candidate and for your campaign. They have real effects just by speaking them. And uh, and so this campaign entered the White House. This was a major campaign promise, one that they saw was very popular with their base. They were very bent on pushing it forward as quickly as possible and uh, and weren't really interested in all of the rounding off of sharp corners that happens uh, as you develop policy proposals in the federal government. And so they just didn't bother with any of that. Um, and. You know, I think what they may have learned, uh, given that they had four court actions uh, staying parts of their order over the course of the weekend, is that saying something doesn't make it so in the federal government, um, which is an important lesson. Uh, if they learn it, they will become more effective at doing similarly horrific things, and that might be a cause for concern. But I think the the other thing that's interesting here is that they cut out not just the the bureaucracy and the lawyers and the policy experts, um, but they cut out their cabinet secretaries. And to me, that's a signal uh, that we can add to the data set, along with um, the fact that Trump doesn't really know any of his national security cabinet yeah. picks. He doesn't really care who they are that much, it seems. Um, and And clearly, he and his people didn't care to consult them uh, and didn't care much about what this would mean for them. And I think that's a signal of the marginal role that the White House intends for their national security cabinet to play in their administration. And, think, and, that, and maybe Susan or Ben want to jump on this, but that makes, makes you wonder too, is it is it consciously we wanted to cut them out because we don't want them to have a role? Or is it more like we didn't realize that we needed to call the Customs and Border Patrol at DHS to tell them how to implement an order? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think it's hard to know whether or not it's um, incompetence or malevolence. Ben, ben wrote a great piece uh, on lawfare uh, over the weekend that makes the case that it's both uh, incompetent and malevolent. That's impressive. Look, I, I think actually this issue of sort of is it a Muslim ban or not um, and, and the precise drafting might end up uh, being a really interesting test case for the court. So ordinarily under equal protection doctrine, um, it, it's, it's really hard to prove that the government is acting out of animus because they say it's not based on religion. It's based on, you know, security. It's not based on uh, orientation. It's based on states' rights, right? There's um, uh, 
sort of even moderately competent uh, evildoers are able to do it uh, by, by offering Good sort of the legal of the words, rationale. Word evildoer. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm bringing it back. Um, you know, what's interesting in this case is you have the president of the United States saying the word Muslim ban over and over and over again throughout his campaign. You have Rudy Giuliani, one of his advisors, going on Fox News after the order was signed and saying that Trump called me and said, I want to have a Muslim ban, but I want to do it in a way that's legal without realizing that that itself is not legal. You are not allowed to have the intention of violating equal protection, but then do it in a legal way. And so whether or not the Supreme Court is going to be willing to allow clips of Rudy Giuliani or God knows who commenting on this stuff, it's one of the first times in which they might not be able to ignore sort of the absolute obvious in terms of what the intention is here. I think it's also the the haste and and carelessness with which it was drafted um, also produces really perverse effects, even in terms of their own goal. Um, you know, if the goal is to exclude Muslims and to protect those who may be uh, targeted by or oppressed by radical Islam, um, one of the things the, the order as drafted disallows is uh, refugee entrance to the United States by um, by religious minorities from the designated countries. So, for example, Iranian Jews, Iranian Baha'is, uh, who may have already gone through refugee screening. Now, the order says on a case-by-case basis, these folks can be admitted after the initial more 90-day moratorium. Um, but it sets up uh, a situation that then has to be corrected uh, post facto and the situation it sets up cuts directly against what they say is an objective of the order. Yeah, I think this does raise sort of an interesting question, and, and I actually think Phil might have a good perspective of uh, even if we set aside all of the other uh, you know potential consequences or, or motivations, does this actually make us any safer and any safer from terrorism? So I, I took a look at the executive order from a strictly counterterrorism focus. And from from my point of view, generally, there are three ways to kill Americans if you're a bad guy. The first way would be to physically travel to the United States from another country, go through all the vetting processes, settle here in the United States, and one day wake up and start killing Americans. That is generally the highest risk um, you know, methodology a group of bad guys could possibly do. Um, number two would be to inspire somebody already in the um, in the United States to kill Americans. That's very low risk because we can the bad guys can do that via the uh, the internet if they want to. And then the third is to kill Americans that are already overseas, and that's probably the lowest risk um, and the and, and the fastest. So, from my point of view, the executive order really you know majors in the minors, so to speak, because it's focusing on the highest risk. Uh, least likely chosen terrorist methodology, and it's honing in on that. And beyond that, this idea of extreme vetting is really tied to the assumption that databases that would be vetted and gone through are correct. And as we know, in any database in the world, it's you know it's garbage in, garbage out. And then a lot of countries don't even have established database systems. So you know, in one of my travels, everybody I met was either born, if you ask them in their language, I'll tell you I was born in January or I was born in June. Everybody there. And you ask them, well, why is that? Well, because when I was born, it was either cold or it was hot. 
And when the Americans came here, I, I needed to fit when I was born into the American system. So all the databases say January or June hmm. for a huge segment of the population. So it is really, it really is. It's a majoring in the minors and it's a garbage in, garbage out thing with all the databases. So I want to say a few things. Uh, I want to start with the obligatory point that extreme vetting is a good name for a band. <laughs> And um, specific that, that is an obligatory. No, I think I think every time the phrase "extreme vetting" comes out, we just need to put it out there to the metal community that it's a metal band. It's a metal yeah, band. Yeah. It's, it's the successful version. The first one was called "Average Vetting," and that band <laughs> failed. Yeah, uh, for obvious horribly. reasons. So, um, on a slightly more serious note, I think it is deeply ironic that a a policy designed. Uh, to require extreme vetting itself went through no vetting. Um, as to the question of whether it is uh, that is a deliberate decision to push stuff through uh, the bureaucracy, look, I think this is part of a uh, a long-term campaign of marginalizing the intelligence professionals and the national security professionals and foreign policy professionals in the US federal government. And that is part of was part of Donald Trump's rhetoric during the campaign. Um, I, you know, they get everything wrong. I don't trust them. I, I know more about ISIS than the generals. Um, you know, I, I, that that's the way he talked all through the campaign. It is uh, part and parcel with dismissing the intelligence community's findings about Russia. Um, it is part and parcel of clearing a group of people to run the NSC, uh, uh, who uh, one of whom has a criminal charge pending against him, which he's going to be sentenced for this week. I, I ask the question to rational security listeners whether any of you can identify someone who started work at the NSC the same week as he was sentenced for a gun charge for bringing a gun on an airplane. You were determined to. to get to topic three at the top of the show. Um, and, <laughs> um, and it's part and parcel of the first major national security decision you make, um, pushing something through without consulting in a serious way, not some of, any of the agencies with expertise in or equities in the outcome of the process. And so what I would say to sh your question, Shane, is um, it's uh, it, whether it's naivete, I don't think it is naivete. I think it fits too, uh, too squarely within the framework that this group of people has been talking and explaining that it wants to uh, to to just do it, it knows better, and the national security and foreign policy professionals of the United States suck. You know that's their view. Yeah, um, I'm not going to disagree with any of that, and it actually makes me um, walk back somewhat the comments I made earlier about you know the difference between campaigning and governing. You're right. This is this approach is not merely about the difference between campaigning and governing. This is governing the way they said they would govern during the campaign on national security issues. So I withdraw. There's there's another actually policy dimension of this EO in terms of what their motivations are, what their hopes are in terms of impact that's worth highlighting and that I haven't seen get much discussion in the media coverage so far, which is 
um, the impact on Iran and U.S. engagement with Iran. Because it turns out that if you look at the numbers of people who make use of non-immigrant visas from these seven countries, um, there are more Iranians than any other group, any other national group. Uh, we have a ton of Iranian students uh, in the United States. We have a ton of Americans with family members uh, in Iran or um, uh, who go back and forth between the United States and Iran visiting. And so there are hundreds of thousands of uh, people affected by the Iran part of this ban. And um, our, my colleague Suzanne Maloney actually posted a piece uh, on the Brookings website today asking whether this wasn't a concerted intentional component of the EO to to uh, declare and and uh, make very clear that the era of engagement with Iran is over. And even if this has a humanitarian uh, dimension that's very sad uh, and that impacts a lot of Americans, it's worth it to say we're not dealing with Iran that way anymore. We're shutting the door. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I think is um, is sort of necessary to acknowledge, especially you know, uh, uh, to sort of look outside the bubble and, and think a little bit about how this is being perceived. So, um, you know, in in DC this weekend, we saw you know mass protests, mass protests at the airport, this sort of sense of chaos. And you know, I really had the sense of this is a deeply unpopular thing. They're going to have to walk this back. His secretaries, uh, you know, weren't consulted. They're turning against it. You know, Reuters has now released a poll saying that forty nine percent of people support. The immigration order, you know, to the extent that he continues to govern the way he campaigns, unless those numbers start to shift, I don't know that he cares that there's chaos. I don't know that he cares that there's unintended consequences or that or that intended consequences uh, are really bad. I, I think it's really all going to hinge on just those polling numbers. Well, let's let's talk about another element of, of the chaos in here, and <clears throat> just talk a bit about um, acting attorney general Yates and also what we're seeing in terms of protests at the state department by people using the dissent channels. Um, and, and I think even some foreign service officers have submitted their resignation, uh, saying that they can't be a part of the administration more broadly, but this executive order has helped clarify a lot of that. So let's start with Yates. I mean, to Ben's point, if this is a kind of a rebuke of the national security expert class and the people who have been governing in this space for, you know, well, as long as we can remember, um, is firing Sally Yates a message to them? Or was that simply like something that was just bound? Like There was no way he couldn't not fire her. I mean, how? but how should we be reading Yates' dismissal? And frankly, did she do the right thing by refusing to implement the order or should she have just quit? So on that latter question, um, I, I I wrote a little piece on lawfare saying the proper course was resignation. Um, but uh, more significantly, there is a wonderful debate that by the time this podcast goes up, uh, will be up, I think, on, on the lawfare podcast between Jack Goldsmith, uh, who argues that she did not do the right thing, and Marty Lederman, uh, of who many listeners will know from Just Security, who uh, uh, argues in favor of what she did or defends what she did. Um, look, I I think that as a practical matter, it's the difference isn't very big. In both cases, she refused to to take part in what's going on and lost her job over it. I would have preferred that she issue a much more blistering statement and do it in the form of a letter of resignation. Um, but uh, 
as a as a functional matter, it amounts to the same thing. She's she uh, registered her 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 protest and was replaced by somebody who will will do the job. And presumably uh, knew that she would be fired when she did this. So, oh, uh, she yeah. couldn't possibly have known not known uh, uh, that she would be quickly fired. Um, look, that said. Um, I think it is probably in the broad scheme of things less important than it is uh, – than it seems in the sense that um, the – presumably Jeff Sessions uh, who is going to be confirmed very quickly will have no compunction about uh, defending this order. Uh, doing this while you still had a holdover attorney general from the previous administration uh, was uns- was certainly unwise on the part of, uh, of of Trump, even if you believe that the order is defensible. Um, and um, and so what it func- what it means as a functional matter is that there's a period of chaos in in just in before you get to the stage where you can mount a real defense of the thing. Um, that's part and parcel of the chaos that is already happening. Uh, that said, at the end of the day, the order is going to get defended by the U.S. Department of Justice, and um, you know, and so whether Sally Yates got fired or resigned or said did it the way I would have wanted her to do, the outcome sort of amounts to the same thing. So I both agree with Ben. Uh, I, so I agree with Jack Goldsmith's position uh, that he wrote a little bit about on Lawfare that. Uh, Yates did not have a particularly strong substantive case that she put forward, right? Saying that it was um, not clearly legal to her. Well, that's not really what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be defending anything that isn't sort of clearly illegal. Um, uh, that said, I, I I don't think resignation would have served the same goal, right? Uh, oh, you know, Obama appointee quits a week early. I don't think gets any kind of uh, sort of bump. Um, Monday night massacre. That was a story, right? And so I do think that sort of apart from the the pure sort of questions of of the law and the her particular role as uh, as acting attorney general, um, I do think it was a pretty shrewd move, sort of politically. Um, also to really uh, sort of elevate the discussion of the kinds of norms we are seeing breached and and to have a pretty direct parallel between Trump and Nixon put right there on the table. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that um, it's very interesting the way each side in this emerging political confrontation is using chaos. <laughs> um, there are those who argue that that Trump wants the confrontation. He wants the chaos because it rallies the base, uh, because it keeps uh, his political opposition in disarray, because they have so many things to react to. Um, but to me, I think that there's a, it's a double-edged sword uh, politically, uh, because while it may do those things, it also has another effect, which is that it starts to shake the faith of Republican members of Congress, that this is an administration that can actually deliver for them on the things they hitched their wagon to Trump to get. Um, They have a legislative agenda that they want to get through. A lot of them, everyone in the House and uh, a chunk of folks in the Senate are up in two years, and uh, they can't get away with being a do-nothing Congress anymore because they control all the uh, both houses and the White House, and and they know that. So they have stuff they want to get done, and they're willing to put up with other parts of Trump because they believe he can help them 
get their agenda through. Um, but when he acts in a way that generates such chaos that is immediately challenged in court because it was done in such a, a stupid way, um, and therefore main, you know, shows how ineffective he is, when he acts in a way that upsets the head of the Defense Department, the intelligence community, um, and other people that Republicans respect and rely on in making national security arguments, it shakes their faith in his effectiveness. Um, and I think that part of the goal for Democrats here is to use things like the Yates resignation and the dissent memo to signal Trump's ineffectiveness, his inability to deliver, and to try and pull Republicans, peel Republican members of Congress away from the Trump train. The dissent memo in the State Department is a really interesting example. I mean, on the one hand, this the fact that this thing has garnered over a thousand signatures is, you know, I can't overstate how unprecedented this is in the whole history of can I, the dissent Can I ask a question, though, Tammy, about sort of what what does signing a dissent memo mean? And is this uh, right? There are, there are obviously rules against retaliation, but are people's careers going to be sidelined? Is there a list? I mean, what does it mean for, for sort of a line person, a foreign service officer to sign this kind of memo? Right. So... Look, the formal rules not only forbid retaliation, um, they forbid it to be mentioned in someone's personnel file that they had anything to do with a dissent memo. And if anyone retaliates, that person is subject to disciplinary action under the department rules. Um, but none of that matters in practice. Signing a dissent memo is a risky thing for Foreign Service officers to do, and the Foreign Service is a very risk-averse very toe-the-line bureaucratic culture. And especially when you get to more senior levels and there's a lot of competition for good jobs, no one can say why somebody didn't get a particular job over six other people who are all eminently qualified. It be, you know, but someone gets a sort of hallway reputation for not going with the program uh, and that's enough or, you know, being a, a squeaky wheel. Um, the the signers, the names of people who sign a dissent memo are not generally known in the State Department. By rule, the memo goes directly to the seventh floor to the secretary and other senior officials. But in practice, it becomes known who has signed a dissent memo. And one of the reasons why this memo is extraordinary is there are only about 7,000 foreign service officers in the Department of State. I mean, regular foreign service officers in the four main cones. Um, and so this represents almost 15% of the Foreign Service signing this memo. And there's a certain amount of safety in numbers. They can't fire them all or stymie them all in their careers. Um, that, you know, and that I think is, is um, a lot of the power of this event. You know, talking to colleagues in the department over the last few days, there were some who said, well, you know, it wasn't time for a dissent memo yet because people hadn't used the other channels that they could use to object with to the policy. They hadn't tried to meet with the relevant senior officials in the department. Now, as Shane noted, many of those senior officials are no longer in office because their resignations were accepted uh, a couple of weeks ago. But um, setting that aside, the political point is that given that this was a political priority for this president and his advisors, 
It doesn't matter what channels you use in the State Department to object to it. Those objections would not be registered. They would not have any influence. The only way this executive order gets overturned is from outside the executive branch. And so the public revelation of the dissent moment, to an extent, is the only way a dissent memo could have an impact in these circumstances. And and I've watched the whole thing from a kind of leadership 101 point of view. And anytime a controversial leader um, takes over an organization, you know, somebody is going to disagree with them. And then that leader has to ask himself, what am I going to do? Am I going to handle this carefully? Am I going to very publicly fire the person to set an example for others? And I think I, I see right now, I wonder what other very personal red lines each person that's part of the Trump administration has. And I wonder how long it's going to take until we see those. And I wonder if the last name of Yates is going to become a verb as somebody gets <laughs> Yatesed um, oh, wow. over, right. over, over an issue. So yeah. um, that's kind of my take that's on that. That's a really well, interesting and, and point. important question about Yates as a verb is whether it's a transitive verb or an intransitive <laughs> verb. I Yatesed him? I Yatesed him, meaning refused to do uh, to serve and got ah. myself fired or he Yatesed her. Um well, so they're Which both sounds faintly obscene when yeah. you're talking about Donald Trump. But, um. but just from a leadership perspective, um, one of the things that's incredibly significant is um, is reporting that Rex Tillerson was had not seen the order, and the the combination has just this... been confirmed. By the way, oh. Congratulations, yeah, Congratulations Tillerson. Secretary Tillerson. You have your work cut out for you. Um, you have your work cut out for you, sir. Um, a thousand people within your own organization have signed this uh, this dissent memo against uh, you know this this highly visible policy, and you um, now have thirty to sixty days to respond. Right? Um, you're like your first day on the job is a highly controversial, uh, you know, a sort of stance that is potentially going to profoundly alienate you from, let's face it, a a factor that's much larger than than merely a thousand people. You know, whenever you think about Donald Trump as the head of the executive branch, um, he has placed Tillerson in a terrible position. Tillerson actually has to lead the State Department. He's not coming in there to, you know, kick some ass and take some names, right? Well, don't you think in these circumstances, given that he wasn't consulted um, and that going native to the State Department gets him nothing with this White House – don't you think his inclination is going to be to go in there and yate somebody? That's a great question. I feel like that is the dilemma that every one of these major cabinet secretaries is facing. Because if if, if they're basically – if the choice is just go off and be the CEO of the department. Right. Uh, and or the be, COO. Or the of COO the of the department. Right, right. Exactly. And, and sort of be completely outside whatever the nerve center of policy is. Um, I don't see Pompeo or Mattis or Tillerson being really excited about that. I mean, it makes me think. But the alternative, uh, the the only alternative is not sucking up to the White House. Right. There's a third alternative, which is trying to form alliances within the cabinet to go around the White House right. on things. And w- which might involve something like, you know, trying to undermine Mike Flynn. And and, and I, I mean, I, I've been thinking now for a week or so that one way you're going to, a, a quick sign that you're going to know sort of who has power because this is being run like an episode of The Apprentice. They're on the first challenge. And eventually we're going to get to the boardroom and it's you all going to be... Run like Lord of the Flies. Well, there's Shane. that too. Okay. I'm so glad I'm being I've diplomatic never seen talking... The Apprentice, so I don't even know what you're, you're talking about. You've seen a thousand but, shows you know, like but, it. But, but, but I just want to say, for those of you who've seen the movie The Player, where everything has to be framed 
as the combination of two existing movies yeah. in a pitch. I think we just set this one up. <laughs> it's the Apprentice it's like Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies meets The Apprentice, <laughs> but exactly. no stars. Exactly. In Washington. But I, mean, I keep thinking that if you see you know, Mike Flynn go down, let's just say, it signals either that, A, Bannon is ascendant, or it signals that the Tillerson, you know, Mattis, uh, Pompeo... Triumvirate, and I'm kind of putting them together because they seem like three reasonable people who have big jobs and who have clearly had some misgivings, according to our reporting about the way the White House is running things. Versus, you know, if Mattis just ups and quits, uh, it's it, it signals me that lots of other kinds of chaos, but that it's actually that this White House power is more ascending. Or maybe it is going to be something like The Apprentice where somebody's got to go in round one and we should not assume that that's going to be the first person to go and that the field is just going to winnow down until, you know, Omarosa is left standing. Well, and, and one of the things, Shane, I was thinking about is, you know, you've seen kind of these joke T-shirts that bomb disposal people wear where it says, if you see me running, you better catch up. So I'm wondering how many people are, you know, wearing those T-shirts or thinking about it here in D.C. Or if you see me running away from yeah. my appointment, you better catch up. Yeah, bigly, bigly. Well, let, let's let's use this to bounce off into the, the third topic, which is what should we make of this I mean, pretty significant restructuring of the National Security Council that seems to be going on. So let me see if I can just kind of capture some of the... the, the yeah, where the, are all those chess pieces? Shane? Yeah. So essentially what we now know, like the, the big high points, I guess, would be this. Um, one is that Steve Bannon, who is the former CEO of Breitbart, uh, a, a sort of um, close advisor to Trump, has been there with him from the beginning, uh, is now a member statute. Well, he's been ordered to be a member of the principles committee of the National Security Council. So he is in the room when all of these big chiefs are getting together to make national security decisions. Um the joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the director of national intelligence are not going to be a part of that. But now the CIA director, I guess, has sort of been invited to be a part of it. Um, Bannon, we know, has his own national security advisor, a guy named Sebastian Gorka, who is the individual facing the gun charge that Ben alluded to. Which, by the way, the sentencing, I believe, is on Friday, it's on Friday. in Arlington County it's on Friday. Uh, District or Circuit Court. Arlington County um, Circuit Court, room 10A at 9.30. Yeah, so if any uh, <laughs> rational security listeners want to attend and write up a uh, brief a summary of what happened. Of what the me current member of the National Security Council, what punishment they received on gun charges. But technically, here's Let the thing. Let us know. He's technically not a member of the National Security Council. He's, he's technically a White House staff, staffer, yeah. but he's a national security advisor to the political advisor to the president, who is also a member of the Principals Committee of the NSC. Right. So the he'll deputies be sitting committees, along the wall. Right. Well, he's yeah. not sitting on the wall. He's at the head of the table, possibly. No, no, Gorka will be sitting Gorka will be sitting, potentially, and was yesterday for the meeting about cybersecurity. Um, a subject got, about which Breitbart News has made, <laughs> to which it has made major investigative contributions. Um, <laughs> the deputies committee, where the real hard work of national security policy is, is cranked out in the interagency, is meeting, I'm told, but is nominally run by KT McFarland. And already you're hearing a lot of grumblings within the, the White House about whether she's up to the challenge of that. People complaining that she Flynn's being overwhelmed. She was a speechwriter in the Reagan administration. Yes, and right? she's been uh, on Fox News and ran for the Republican nomination for Senate in the state of New York. See, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, what you have here is, I mean, it, look, the, the picture that emerges is 
one of it's hard to know is it chaos or is it just multiple power centers vying for control it's highly unconventional and you have this merging of the streams of politics and national security i think in a way that we just haven't seen before and yes i know people talk about david axelrod sat in on some principals meetings he has said that they were a couple of meetings and he was on the back bench and no carl rove did not sit in on meetings in the george w bush administration this is unusual yeah so i think this is the part in which um they're essentially this is a loophole right and this is this is a really really significant transgression of an important norm um and that's that the national security council which is created by statute congress says that the president needs this council um because he's not supposed to be making purely political decisions whenever it comes to national security these are really really important important matters, right? We don't want a president deciding whether, uh, you know, sort of the the operational movements of, uh, of the military based on, you know, his sort of his poll numbers and stuff, right? We, we want some degree of separation. And so to put Steve Bannon on the principles committee um, is sort of it's formalizing the, the, the breakdown of that really important uh, uh, breach. The other thing that's significant is, you know, Bannon, other than uh, the White House has touted him as a, um, a formal naval intelligence officer, Officer, uh, criteria one and two, and I'm not making this up, an expert on global populist movements. Um, and that's what makes him qualified for this, you know, highly uh, influential, really, really important position. You know, that what becomes difficult is how exactly you respond to this. So we're already seeing uh, lots of alarm from uh, from the intelligence community, from the military. John McCain, um, you know, Republican senators are coming out and saying, look, this is, I think McCain called it a radical departure. Um, sort of, you know, raising the flag, um, you know, that this is not normal. This is this is really worrisome. And then you have this other sort of, I don't know, social media or media uh, uh, hysteria going on saying, this is illegal. And, they, and they're pulling out, um, you know, the National Security Act, which they're calling an obscure law, which, come on, guys, you're killing me. It's obscure case. to everyone but you, <laughs> it's Susan. Obscure. It's not an obscure law. Um, you know, and, and sort of, oh, you know, the, he's not allowed to do this and this is against law. No, right? That this actually, you know, he's not actually been appointed. He's an invitee and the principles committee isn't actually part of the law. And the need to sort of have a really disciplined discussion here and because it's getting lost in sort of the outrage of this faux outrage over, over a legal breach that just it doesn't really exist in practice. Then you're not actually going to be able to focus on the actually important issue, which, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we ran a piece on lawfare uh, uh, that Jordan wrote. That uh, ended with a tweet from I'm forgetting who actually wrote uh, who wrote it, um, but it said you know bottom line uh, oh I'm sorry Lawrence Tribe uh, saying uh, you know bottom line it's pro- it's probably not illegal for for Steve Bannon to sit on the principles committee, but it should be, and that's like I think that's going to be a recurring theme in this administration. Maybe it's not illegal, but it should be. It shouldn't be happening. So I think this actually goes back to a point Ben made at the outset, which is that the Trump administration's approach to national security through the campaign and now into governing is we don't trust the professionals. And so the norm that you cite, Susan, you know, that this statute was created, the council was created, and presidents have preserved it as cabinet secretaries and military and intelligence professionals um, because, you know, we have to trust the experts. And so what Trump's doing with Bannon is actually of a piece with this broader 
attitude that, no, actually the experts are the people we shouldn't trust. We, the people, have the common sense. And this is inherent in the populist ideology. We, the people, have more common sense than the experts. Any idiot could do it. Any idiot could do it. But it also, what one of the other defenses of Bannon that I just found so astonishing that I have to share it with you was by... Uh, that same Sebastian Gorka speaking to National Public Radio's All Things Considered yesterday and asked about Bannon's qualifications for the position, cited, yes, his naval experience, but also said he is truly a great strategic mind. And the NPR uh, anchor asked him, you know, what is the evidence for this? And he said, well, he built this incredible media company. And he's been very successful. And that demonstrates that he's a strategic genius. He ran this campaign. And that demonstrates that he's a strategic genius, which is a very different sense of the word strategy. Well, so I think it's of a piece with saying he's an expert on uh, global populist movements, right? <laughs> which is to say, it's like, it's like putting Marine Le Pen on the principles committee because she's an expert on French extremism. It's like putting you know? David Duke on an FBI uh, task force into the KKK, right? It's not, that's not the kind of expertise we're well, interested well, in. Well, so, so look, I think, but, but I think, you know, that this is, we're, we're, what they did with the NSC is a profound expression of the point that I was making earlier, that, that these are a group of people who uh, want to design a structure in which they shoot from the hip and then the bureaucracy implements. And the bipartisan consensus is that you have an interagency process that involves the many different bureaucracies that will have to implement in order to prevent the president from shooting from the hip because the uninformed president who thinks he knows everything might just get some big things wrong. And that is the central uh, tension uh, other than the moral tensions and the, the the question of what the policy should and shouldn't be, the central tension that you're seeing cutting across a huge amount of this is do we get to – we because we're the Trumpists and we won – do we get to make all kinds of shit up and you guys go and do it or – do we follow a kind of regular order in which we, the the bureaucracy and the NSC process tees up very carefully decisions for presidential review and you make decisions within the confines of what uh, a, a, a large cadre of professional staff describes as the option set? And I think we're seeing it is perfectly lawful. It's just a vision of president of, of how the presidency works that we probably haven't seen, certainly since the World War II. And maybe I, I don't really know what the national security bureaucracy was like before that, but it's probably a, shoot a lot from the hip presidency. It's basically. a it's a well, real nineteenth century vision of what the presidency is. Well, yeah, and so and so on that note of what is and isn't lawful. You know, let's fast forward in our time machine real quick to the next presidency or two presidencies after that. I wonder if we're going to see an, an interplay between the president and the Congress about how prescriptive the National Security Council law is. And if it gets more and more and more prescriptive, three or four presidents from now, will that president have the flexibility to build the NSC as they need it 
because under President Trump, the NSC was possibly greatly restricted by a change in law. You know, I want to go back to a question that Shane raised at the outset just briefly. And Shane, I don't know if if your recent reporting gives us any further insight on the state of play within the White House, the different power centers within the White House, because it does seem clear that there's um, there's a Flynn crowd and there's a Bannon Miller crowd. Mm Right. And with in uh, issuing this executive order, reporting suggests that there was jockeying between them. Um, So what does it mean? You know, what does it mean for policy if we know uh, which of these two crowds prevails ultimately? Well, it seems like I mean, if we're just, you know, taking points. Right. And we're racking up points. The Bannon Miller crowd and maybe Kushner somewhere floating around there in the background. No, he's going to make Middle East peace. Don't worry about <clears> it. <throat> or cybersecurity. I think that was his new thing. The new thing this week. Um, that seems they do seem to maybe be the I'll ones be a ballerina. Tra- you know what? <laughs> he's got the figure for it. Thank you, um, thank you, Shane. <laughs> you know that, that, that he'll uh, that, that that they're really driving the train. And I mean, I'm doing some more reporting around this, which you know I'll hopefully have some something out about this this next week. But I I would not be surprised to find that. Mike Flynn is in some ways even trying to subordinate himself to Steve Bannon. Um, And I don't know whether that's entirely because he thinks that the writing is on the wall and he needs to get with the program that Bannon seems to be running things. Uh, But we we know from some of our own reporting in the journal and the Times has done some on this too, that uh, Kushner and Bannon did meet with Pompeo and Tillerson and Mattis to basically reassure them that don't worry, Mike Flynn can do the job. There were some concerns that he was being overwhelmed, uh, that the that, that his de- choice of deputy was having some trouble. Um, so, you know, just looking at kind of how these these data points stack up, I mean, Mike Flynn is still the national security advisor, but I don't think anybody would say that he's really the most influential policy voice in the White House right now. And there's been reporting that Trump has been annoyed with him. There was a meeting uh, reporting the Times had this where there was a meeting with, uh, with with the meeting with Theresa May, the British prime minister, uh, um, where she brought Flynn up. Flynn talked too much. Flynn right? talked too much. Yeah. Right. The question of when you're talking to Putin came up and May said, well, you know, just be careful. I mean, I understand you want to talk to him, but you no know, Russia's intentions, et cetera, et cetera. And Trump said, you know, when are we talking? And Flynn said Saturday and then didn't stop, just went on with some other, you know, tangent about about Russia and Putin. And Trump was reportedly quite annoyed by that. I mean, look, I think everybody is, is guessing on how much longer Flynn lasts and, and, and the betting gets you know shorter and shorter by the day. Yeah, look, I mean, at some point, um, one, it's not surprising that they're eating their own, right? Um, the, we saw this during the Yum. campaign over and over again, <laughs> right? That, you know, the as soon as there was some sort of move of weakness, like a, like a herd, they would, you know, oust this person. And I think we'll see that again. Again and again throughout this organization. Um, look, for, I think from the from the perspective of um, very concerned cabinet secretaries, um, uh, one thing at a time, man. Right. So Mike <laughs> Flynn is currently the weak gazelle. Um, if they think that he's a problem, that the, there's an opportunity to remove him right now, um, that opportunity has not presented itself with Steve Bannon, um, or, or not sort of sufficiently. So maybe they have to set themselves to the task of getting Mike Flynn out. Um, then they will move to the next task. Right. I, I think there is some. There's a, there's a lot of people who have a lot of problems with multiple actors in this sphere. Um, and so they're going to have to prioritize because the notion that Trump is going to sort of give his whole team the old heave ho all at once, that's just not how he operates. Mm. Um, you know, it does become... 
you know, not to bring this back to like sensible policy or anything, this oh, beautiful reality show that we have silly. going on, <laughs> you know, it, it just becomes, it becomes really worrisome to think about, you know, uh, cabinet secretaries or, or the national security advisor or White House staff making decisions or recommendations based on sort of their own base, personal, very, very small interests, because those do not align with the interests of the United States. You know, we already saw, uh, you know, a first American service member, uh, you know, Navy SEAL was killed over the weekend in a raid, um, a raid in which the military itself has said um, everything went wrong. Um, you know, these are things go wrong sometimes. And, and it's um, perhaps not fair to sort of you know, directly place it at, at Donald Trump's feet. Um, you know, but this is a really difficult space to work in. It's a space which is the the, the highest possible consequences. Um, and, and so it's just setting aside how bizarre it is to sort of be watching this unfold on the front page of the New York Times and Wall, Wall Street Journal and Washington Post. Um, it, it's also profoundly concerning about, you know, these people actually um, uh, have really, really significant jobs to do. And are they doing that job? You know, uh, just one half sentence to add here, which is that the other problem with pushing the experts to the margins or um, devaluing their efforts or the efforts of the NSC process writ large is that there are a lot of issues that need policymaker attention that don't get it, that don't get raised to that level. And so they can push down their priorities and ineptly or eptly, as the case may be. But there are a lot of things that need to rise to them. And if not, they're going to be surprised. And that's never, ever good. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, we've already had our favorite object with Phil. Um, we burned it on the B-roll. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I will just, you know, as as Phil is here as our object, I will um, make the real object, Phil, not you, but your website, Divergent Options. Yeah, which everyone should be checking out. Which which we did give a shout out to the other day. Um, but it's, it's uh, very, very timely, particularly – when the executive branch itself might not be doing such a great job putting options, you might in front have to do people's people. jobs for them. So, yeah. yeah. So, so what was funny when I came up with the idea last October, I called some friends and I said, "This is either going to work pretty well or be the worst idea ever." And so, I'm I'm pleased with the way it's working out. And my favorite part is at the bottom of all of our articles, we always say recommendation none. And so we simply provide <laughs> options, but we do not recommend. So well, yeah, I, think, I really enjoy I think what part. you should do is you should set up a new feature called Shadow NSC <laughs> in which you get – Different analysts mm -hmm. to represent the equities of different agencies. You just do a game. Yeah, yeah. You, you game out like so. You know your DHS for this purpose and your state, uh, and you get uh, you know a synthesized. You try to create a synthesized set of recommendations or options uh, uh, based on based on a process like the one that traditionally has happened, and some of us would like to think should happen. Um, okay, I'll share my object. My object actually is going to be – it's going to be a negative object. It's Ooh. an object that didn't materialize this week wow. or at least as of we're taping today. You're blowing my mind. Right. A non-object is your object? Yeah. The dog that didn't bark. Yes. Uh, Donald Trump gathered uh, all of his national security advisors together with Rudy Giuliani at the White House yesterday to talk about the importance of cybersecurity. And we were all told that he was going to sign an executive order on cybersecurity, which was going to announce all these great new initiatives and plans and 
things that he wanted to review and take stock of, and he didn't sign it. Wah, wah. Uh, it was <laughs> it was indefinitely postponed after uh, the, uh, the 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 photo op and the cameras were there, and he gave his speech. Uh, in, in there Julian. was also a great moment in the room where he wanted to turn the mic over to Rudy Giuliani, who was sitting directly across from him, and he looked all around the room and said, "Where's Rudy?" And Where, he was right in front of Rudy. him. Yeah, he was right in front of him. So this was this really was this a moment who I, I, I somebody who will shall remain nameless in the U.S. government today said to me, it was just like one of those moments where like you know the president of Russia summons the commander of the of the Red Fleet to sit down and give him an update on all of the progress that we're making and you know whatever. Uh, and Giuliani just sort of sat there. And I'm going to read the quote because it's just it's just great. Hold on, he says to Trump. As the cameras are rolling and he's telling the president about about cybersecurity, a large part of our country, unlike other countries, is made up of the private sector. And the private sector is wide open to hacking. And sometimes by hacking the private sector, you get into government. So we can't do this separately. And you were wise enough that we should have a council where we would bring in the private sector. They can explain to you the problems they have, and they can explain to the administration the solutions they have, which in some cases may be better than the government's, and in some cases they will not be as good as the government's. Plus, we can search around the world, including countries like Israel and places where they're doing a lot of advanced cybersecurity analysis. We can look for long-term solutions. That says precisely nothing and everything at the same time. It was really that was that amazing. Is Soviet style. It That's was incredible. Really it was incredible. And at the end of it, they didn't sign the order, and there's no word on when. And the, the, the and, chatter. And this joins a long list of other orders that have been announced and not signed, and not signed. So, although drafts of have have circulated. Yeah. So. So I have an object lesson um, that is uh, both log rolling and a little bit related to mm-hmm. uh, to cybersecurity, um, and that's a paper that I just released uh, with the Hoover Institute um, and uh, is up on Lawfare now um, that's uh, not uh, a little bit unusual, a little bit outside the wheelhouse of sort of the pure national security beat, and that's, um, uh, it's called the elephant in the room uh, addressing child exploitation and going dark. Um, this is not an issue that uh, gets a lot of public attention, um, but it is a really, really serious one. Um, uh, it's one of the reasons why it's so important we start getting to uh, good, sensible, effective policy answers on really, really hard questions. Um, it's why uh, we don't have four years or 18 months or however long this godforsaken administration lasts um, to just uh, kind of have meaningless press conferences where people say absolutely nothing. Uh, the challenges here are just absolutely immense. Um, so including, uh, you know, both for the purposes of uh self-promotion and wanting people to read my paper, um, and also just uh, hoping that people will uh, start to address this really, really uh, pernicious, complex, difficult problem. Um, go read my paper and give it some thought about how one might solve some of these issues uh, on a technical level, um, and then maybe write a White House memo or post for divergent options, because <laughs> we're not seeing great stuff coming out of this administration. Ben, you have an object? Yeah, I have a, a lovely object. Um, so a lot of people did a lot of work at airports this week and there are a lot of neat stories. Um, but, um, Chicago, Illinois has my favorite, uh, story of the week, uh, from an airport, which is captured in an incredible photo that the Chicago Tribune, uh, ran of, uh, a little Orthodox Jewish kid on his father's shoulder, uh, holding one sign uh, and uh, a little veiled Muslim girl uh, on her father's shoulder, uh, 
holding another sign, uh, broadly grinning at each other, um, and uh, standing, uh, their fathers are standing next to each other at a, a protest against the executive order. And I tweeted this photo as apparently, I didn't realize this, but 16 or 17,000 other people did the same thing. Uh, and the dads ended up in communication with one another. Uh, and they are having Shabbat dinner uh, this week together. Uh, and the Chicago Tribune did a just totally lovely story about how this uh, very uh, moving little moment with these these two kids who are uh, you know, just kind of enjoying each other's company up there on their father's shoulders at this protest. Uh, and so my object lesson is the photograph, uh, which we will, uh, I guess we probably can't uh, put on uh, on our website without violating the intellectual property of the Chicago Tribune, but we'll link to it. And I urge you all to take a look at it. It's a, it's a, uh, a moving little photograph that... Um, uh, that captures a lot of what was going on at at a lot of airports this week. That's great. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive, of course, at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You know what to do on iTunes, Stitcher, oh, Soundcast, cloud something there's so many podcatchers out there five stars go on not all four, of them not three yeah five start with itunes then go on like three or four more if you have time you can even like copy the review and just paste it into other places rate us everywhere we would love that um our audio engineer is quinta Dressick. the show is produced by jen howell our the show music- this week was not brought to you by any of the uh um, companies that we would normally be promoting at this point. Oh, you yeah. know who it was Not brought to us by? though The people who have been commenting on our Facebook page. Yeah. Spaghetti on the Wall Productions Facebook page. Thanks for writing, guys. Yeah, thank Keep you very up. much for writing. And we always, we even if we can't respond to your comments, we are reading them uh, and it's helping us inform the show. Uh, our music was performed this week by Steve Bannon and the Band Band. <laughs> Extreme vetting. The music is performed by Extreme. I'm pretty vet- sure Extreme vetting has done the music on this show before, <laughs> but, but couldn't one open for the other? Yeah, yeah. Extreme Double vetting hair. opening for Steve Bannon and the Band Band. Yeah, uh, which will be getting backups on keyboards by the lovely Sophia Yam, who we thank for actually performing our music every week, as she has for 101 episodes. You guys, thank you, Sophia. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman, what is Ben, what is Susan Hennessy, and our special, very special guest Phil Walter, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.